Last week, Jacob kicked off a brand new series with us called To the Glory of God, based out of 2 Corinthians, when, when Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, everything that we do with our lives should be done to the glory of God. And this, we're going to be looking at uh, our first subject in this series. We're going to be nine weeks, well, ten weeks, including last week's introduction. Um, today's subject is thinking to the glory of God talking about our minds and our intellect and how we think with those minds in a manner that glorifies God and and glories in God. Now, how many of you in this room would consider yourself an intellectual? The snickers are pretty telling. Some of you are pointing at other people. None of you are pointing at your spouses. Um, How many of you would think of yourself as smart? Like, yeah, I'm a smart person. I'm an an intelligent person. Or even, I'm a brilliant. (laughs) Now the laughs are getting louder. And if you raise your hand, we would all think that's an arrogant person, right? Well, we, you're thinking, my thinking, most of us are going on the opposite end of that spectrum. My thinking could never glorify God. Like, if our minds were an orchestra, I got the kazoo, right? Like, I'm over here, you know. Which the kazoo's not even an instrument, it's just your voice through a plastic tube. You know, we're thinking like Einstein's over here playing the solo saxophone part, and I got the triangle, right? I got that wooden blocks in elementary school, which is like a broken chair. They're like, here, you clearly have no music career, put these two blocks together and we'll pretend that like you're part of the band, right? And we think there's, there's no way that, that my thinking could possibly glorify God. But do you know what Pastor Larry would say to that? Horse feathers. I still have no idea what that means. But what I know, what I know is that, that we all have brilliant minds. The fact that you can look at me this morning and see me is testimony to how incredible your mind is. I want to start by talking about the there we go. The visual cortex, like always. We'll go back to the, the visual cortex. This is a part of your brain. It's in the back of your brain, part of your mind that enables you to see things and perceive what you see. Okay? So, work me through this. Your retina, okay, in your eyeball, it conducts 10 billion calculations every second. So every second, one Mississippi. Your retina just sent 10 billion calculations from your eyeball to your visual cortex. That's pretty impressive, okay? To put this in computer terms, if you, you have one nerve cell in your retina. If you took 10 milliseconds of processing from that one nerve cell, the amount of processing that one nerve cell can do in 10 milliseconds, you have conducted 500 mathematical equations 100 times in your brain. That's 50,000 math problems that you just did in 10 milliseconds. All right? Some of you were like, that would have been helpful in high school. To compare that to a computer, one of the world's most powerful supercomputers called the Cray supercomputer. It's so impressive they called it Cray. It would take several minutes for that supercomputer to do what your brain can do in 10 milliseconds. Now consider this. We have 10 million cells in our eyeball. So, what would take a Cray supercomputer a minimum of 100 years takes place in your eye every second. 
That's cray. You are a stinking genius. And don't let anybody tell you differently. Not only that, our, that's just the start of our visual cortex. Don't get me started on the visual cortex. This gives us the ability for depth. I don't fall off the stage when I'm talking to you. That you all don't run into each other when you're putting your chairs up at the end of the service. That's your visual cortex. Peripheral vision. Thanks to the visual cortex, we don't get sneak attacked by anybody. Okay? We have peripheral vision. Motion vision. If you had motion vision blindness, you would not be able to cross the street because you wouldn't be able to perceive how fast cars were coming at you and dodge them like a ninja. You wouldn't be able, and this is more important, this is going to speak to the hearts of many of us in this room, you would not be able to pour a cup of coffee because you wouldn't be able to differentiate between moving liquid into your cup and solid. How many of you are like, praise God for motion vision, right? Motion vision allows us to see over 10 million colors in our universe and to detect stars that are over a billion miles away. And that's just the tip of what your visual cortex can do. And your visual cortex is one of the simplest processes that your mind conducts. That's just looking at things. Think of all the abstract things. There are thousands upon thousands of more complicated processes going on in our minds all the time. None of us can claim to have a lame brain. And that is not a testament to our genius. To marvel at his paintings is to glorify Picasso. To marvel at his symphonies is to glorify Beethoven. And Proverbs 12 says this, Ears that hear and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. See, to marvel at your visual cortex is to marvel at God the one who created your visual cortex and all things in this universe. So in our quest to discover how we glorify God with our minds, let's start with the one who made our minds. Let's start with the mind of God. One thing that we know is that God is omniscient, okay? Uh, this word is a big Christian word that we use. It just basically means he knows everything, science. The word for knowledge and omni means all. So God knows everything, right? None of us would dispute that, but just so we know that it is biblical. For God is greater than our hearts, John says, and he knows everything. Pretty clear. Job, do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? And then the psalmist said, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Not only does God know everything, he is the source of knowledge. So of course he knows everything. It comes from him. But not only does God know everything, God's mind is unrivaled. There is no one who can touch God in his understanding. So, uh, Isaiah said this, Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? And I love this. I appreciate Isaiah's sarcasm here. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? He says, did, did God go to school? Like, if someone had to teach God what he knows, is there someone who could correct God and say, no, you don't see that properly? The implication here is clearly no. And then a, a, well, a more familiar passage with us, Isaiah says 15 chapters later, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's mind is unrivaled by anything else. Not only that, God 
is a God of order, logic, reason, and truth. Now, this is something we take for granted. Because God's mind is rational and logical and truthful and orderly, so is the universe he created. And this is something we take for granted, but consider for for a moment this earth that we're sitting on. Right now, um, no one, there's, we have no sensation of motion, right? Your visual cortex is not telling you that we're moving at all, right? We're just sitting here. But you realize that we are actually spinning on Earth's axis at 1,000 miles per hour. So if you drove here, coming 45, 55, 65 if you were in sin, okay? Imagine spinning on your axis. So we're right now, we're moving at 1,000 miles an hour around the center of the Earth. That's insane. And not only that, we're hurtling through space at 66,600 miles an hour, which means that in 24 hours, one day's time, we have actually traveled 1.3 million miles in our annual trek around the sun. And you thought you didn't have any big plans today. Now, we don't sit here going, man, I'm so glad we made it through another full rotation. Like, praise God that we did not spin off our axis, right? High-fiving each other, like, yeah, we made it, right? We're all pumped up because we didn't, we didn't spin out of control. We take for granted that we're not crashing into other planets or that, you know, you know the fact of, like, if we were just a little bit closer to the sun, we'd fry. And if we were a little bit farther away from the sun, we would freeze. That we're the exact right distance from the sun to actually have life, something we've never found on another planet in our solar system. And we just, we take that for assumption, but that is not assumption, that is God. Paul says in Colossians, he existed before everything else began, and he holds all creation together. It is the power of God expressed in his orderly mind that physics works. Imagine a world where there was no logic, where there was no reason, no truth, no order. It would be complete chaos, bedlam, anarchy. I would drop this remote. I wouldn't know if it would go up or down. You wouldn't even be able to listen to the words right now because how would you know they were true? We couldn't function in a world like that. But we can praise God that each morning we know that we're going to see the sun rise. And each evening we know that we're going to see it set. That's the expression, as surely as the rising sun. Because God is a God of order. But more reliable than the sunrise, we can bank on the fact that he loves us, that he cares about us, that his omniscient, unrivaled mind is on us. So this morning, we're going to discover three ways that we can glorify God with this mind that he gave us. The first way that we glorify God with our mind is when we use it as he intended. To continue the analogy of Beethoven, If the universe is God's body of work, mankind is his masterpiece. It's his magnum opus, what he did. He created everything else. He said, that's good, that's good, that's good. He created us. That's very good. That's what he says in Genesis. We are made in his image. Look at Genesis 1. He says, so God created people in his own image. God painted them after himself. God made man 
to be like himself in his image. We reflect the nature of God, and that includes our minds. Adam and Eve's minds reflected God's ability to think rationally, logically, orderly, truthfully. And we see other ways that that's expressed. We see it in in their creativity. Genesis 2 says, The Lord formed from the soil every kind of animal and bird. He brought them to Adam to see what he would, he would call them. And Adam chose a name for each one. One of the, Adam's first tasks was to name all of the animals. I mean, imagine the creativity that it would take to come up with a name for every species of animal on this earth. Think hippopotamus, right? Now, obviously, Adam probably wasn't speaking English. I'm sure it was silly in his language, too. Um, Their creativity reflected God's creativity, the one that created those animals in the first place. Their orderly minds reflected his orderly minds. The next task he he gives them, God said, let us make man in our image and likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God's first task, he says, Adam and Eve, you're in charge. This is your world to run. You're in charge of the animals and the plants and all these things. So to, to make that it wasn't just, just you know, chaos, that the animals weren't just running into each other and doing whatever they wanted to do, Adam and Eve were put there to rule over them. That orderliness of God that keeps the planets in motion, he wanted Adam and Eve to have that same sort of approach in, in their minds and finally to have a mind of discovery. You imagine Adam and Eve being put in this, in this garden and, and for the rest of their days running around. Look at that. Did you see, you see that tree? Whoa, whoa, that bird. Did we name that bird yet? You know, did we? And they're just running around discovering and enjoying God's creation for them. You see, our, our creativity, it magnifies God's creativity. When we write a song, when your kid builds with Legos and creates something, when we invent, the, our creativity magnifies the creativity of our maker. Our order magnifies God's order. When we think reasonably and and, and logically, when we we solve problems, when we build cities, the fact that mankind was able to construct New York City, that that we can establish governments and organize this world, the fact that economics work at all is a testament to God's orderliness that he gave to us made in his image. And finally, our discovery and enjoyment of creation magnifies the creator, the one who made these things for us. Have you ever seen someone who's hungry for knowledge, who just wants to learn? I love, I, I, call, I call them lifelong learners. And they're people that I love to be around. Because they're always looking, they always want to discover, they want to know more. And I, this one time in China, that's how I start most of my stories, um, this one time in China, I was with Jacob. We were going there. I was potentially going to go there full time to work. And this, this couple picked us up from the airport that we spent most of the time with. And uh, you knew, I mean, the guy was a hand surgeon and she was a nurse. So they're already pretty, you know. Um, but they, they pick us up from the airport. And from day one till day, whenever we left, they, nev- they, they exhibited um, what it is to be a lifelong learner. I was in the taxi with him, and right away, he's talking. They'd only been there for about six months. So they just learned a little bit of Mandarin. And he's sitting there, uh, my friend, he's talking to the taxi driver. And he's asking him all these questions about the guy's life and the taxi company and the city that we're in. And then he's bringing Jacob and I into the conversation and translating for us and seeing if we have questions for him. And, and then as we went out to these villages to explore, we're driving out to these villages in China, and, and him and his wife, 
Eli for pointing out all of the, the rice fields and, and how those operate, and the, the plants and the wildlife and the, the culture of the people and the history of the area. And I'm like, dude, how do you know all of this? You've been here for six months. Like, I'd be impressed if I could say bathroom within the first six months. And he's going on about the history of this province. And I'm thinking, and he said, I just, I love to learn. I'm curious. I want to know. But they didn't want to just know for the sake of knowledge. They wanted to know the area so they could know the people, so they could tell them about Jesus. To be lifelong learners is biblical. Proverbs says, the mind of the prudent is ever getting knowledge, and the ear of the wise is ever seeking, inquiring for, and knowledge. You see, what this means is we are to be truth seekers. And truth seekers, it implies two things. Number one, it implies that we don't know everything. (laughs) The mind that glorifies God is the humble mind. How often do we think we know it all? We got it all together. But we don't. And so we are to be truth seekers. The second thing it implies is that, that we are to seek the truth. And the most important truth that we can ever seek after is Him. All truths lead to the one who claims to be the truth. Which leads us to our second point. The way we glorify God, number two, is that we think, when we think about him rightly. A.W. Tozer said this. We've quoted this before, but I think it's so fitting for this subject today. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you is when what comes into your mind when you think about the person of God. Excuse me. Notice that he didn't say what's most important about you is how you feel about God or your actions toward God. Tozer understood correctly that it starts in our mind. What what we think about God drives or determines how we feel about God and how we act toward God and toward others and toward everything else in our lives. Pastor Larry was talking about bitterness a couple weeks ago, and he used this example. And, and uh, talking to, to Tim Gillis, our, the chairman of our elder board, he was up here earlier talking about floaties on, uh, on uh, snowshoes. That's our spiritual leader. Um, he, uh, uh, he always talks about, he's, he's a professional counselor as well, and one of the things he often talks about is this, this train, uh, uh, and it's a thought train. And what it, what it describes is that our thoughts... Um, they pull, they drive, they determine um, our behavior and our emotions. So what we think determines how we act and, and how we feel. Now, you think about this in terms of God. If I think of God as an angry tyrant in heaven who is waiting to squash me when I cut out of line, do you think that's going to affect my actions, my behavior, my emotions? I'm going to be driven by fear, uh, by shame, resentment, That's going to trickle out into every area of my life. But if I think of God as a loving father who is, yes, in charge, but who longs to give his children good gifts and for us to enjoy him and has given us his son to make that possible, what's going to be pulled along? Comfort and peace and joy and contentment and love. That's going to change my behaviors, motivated not out of fear, but out of love. 
Think about what happened in the Garden of Eden, how this all started, Genesis chapter 3. The problem began because what Eve thought about God changed. Remember, she's in the garden, and the serpent convinces her. He said, God didn't say that. And she saw God as a liar. Her mindset, what she thought about when God, when she thought about God, what came into her mind changed. And instead of seeing God as trustworthy, instead of seeing God as sovereign, Eve decided that she, like Satan, could be like God. She decided that she could decide what was best for herself, that she could decide what was good and what was evil. And so her thoughts changed about God, and these thoughts led to action. What did she do? She ate the fruit, and sin was introduced into the world. Adam and Eve were severed from the presence of God because of their actions that were led from their thoughts. And then from there, their actions led to emotions. What happened? As soon as they ate of that fruit, it says they looked down. Uh-oh, I'm naked. They felt it says they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And then God comes into the garden. He says, where are you guys at? And what did Adam say? He replies, I heard you, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Fear and shame introduced into Adam and Eve's lives because of what they did. And they did what they did because what they thought about God changed. The problem did not start with their emotions. The problem did not start with their behavior. Their, their problem started with their beliefs. It started with the way they thought about God. And that's why in Proverbs, the wisest man who ever lived, he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Wisdom is, a, is applied knowledge. If we know things, Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If we just know things for the sake of knowing them, that's empty in and of itself. But if we are able to apply that knowledge to our lives, he says that's wisdom. He says wisdom cannot start until we think about God rightly. Until we see God as God to be feared and revered and in awe of. That we see him as sovereign, him on the throne, and him as a loving God who made right a way for us to get to him. Until we start with God as God is in reality, there is no wisdom. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But following Adam and Eve's lead, mankind refuse to think about God right Romans chapter 1 here. And as we follow Paul's train of thought, I want you to look at the role that the mind plays in our depravity, in our sinfulness, and in our rebellion against God. It's, it's fascinating, but tragic. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who do what? Push the truth away from themselves. What truth? For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. You say, okay, well, we know about God because we have the scripture. But what about the guy that lives in the middle of Africa that's never heard about God, that's never had Jesus' name translated into his language? How does he know about God? Funny you should mention that, says Paul. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. 
So they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Just as we talked about just a few minutes ago, God expressed his godness through what he made. And he says we can see his nature, his orderliness, his logic, his reason, his truth, his eternality. We can see all of that in creation. He says you have no excuse. He says yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. What came into their minds when they thought about God started to change. The result was that their minds became dark and confused. Foolishness. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools instead. Instead of believing what they knew was the truth about God, they deliberately, they weren't duped, they didn't misunderstand, they deliberately chose to believe lies. So they worshipped the things God made, but not the Creator Himself, who is to be praised forever. Amen. It all starts in the mind. Why, why do we purposely, deliberately suppress the truth about God? Why do we refuse to believe that God is who He says He is? Why do we trade that truth for a lie? So I can be God. I can be on top. So I can be in control of my life. To admit that there is a creator and worship him implies that I am the created and am accountable and responsible to the creator. So what's the way out? How do we put God back in his proper place and think in a manner that glorifies him? The last point, number three, we glorify God with our minds when we submit it to him. When we submit it to him. You realize we have, we have 50,000 thoughts that come into our mind every single day. That's quite a bit. That's every two seconds we have a thought, a new thought. That means that we have 18 million thoughts per year and roughly 1.3 billion thoughts in our lifetime. We're doing a whole lot of thinking. And researchers say that we, 80% of our thoughts are negative. That means that in 50,000 thoughts today, 40,000 of those thoughts are negative. On average, I don't know how they do this research, but they're smarter than I am. Negative thoughts towards self. I'm not smart. I'm not good enough. People don't like me. And negative thoughts toward other people. I don't like them. They're not smart. <laughs> right? You're like, yeah, I can identify with that one. <laughs> but, and so you think about if 80% of our thoughts are negative, you know, and that was probably from, you know, those probably unbelievers that were doing that study. So if they come up with 80% of our thoughts being negative, how many of those thoughts do we think are honoring to God and glorify Him? In Matthew, when um, Jesus was asked, He said, what's the greatest commandment? What's the one thing that if God had a desire for us to obey him, to do as, he's, as he wills for us to do, what is that? What would be that command, Jesus? And Jesus' response, he replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your visual cortex. With all your mind. In the Greek, the word mind, it's not just like the part in your brain that can do math problems. It's the intellect as in thought, feeling, and will. Oftentimes synonymous with the word heart. 
You'll see heart in scripture many times referring to the exact same thing. It's not just the smartedness. It's not just your grade point average determiner. This is your thought, your emotion, your feeling, and your will. The thing in you that desires to do what you do. What drives everything in your life. This stems from your mind. And he says that part of you, that needs to love the Lord your God 100%. That every thought that you have, every desire you have, every emotion you have should be God-honoring, enjoying Him and exalting Him in front of other people and to His glory. You think back to this morning. Did I love the Lord with all my mind? Or all, we're like probably 15,000, 20,000 thoughts in today. Did all of those thoughts glorify Him? Probably not. So how do we do this? How do we love him with all of our minds? How do we glorify him with our thinking? Romans 12, Paul said this. He said, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I like the way the New Living Translation, it it, it says this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way you think. You see, this word for metamorpho, okay, means to change into one to another form when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It becomes something completely new. We had a depraved mind. And God, in his love, through the person of Jesus, transforms our mind into something new. And really, what this is getting at, this is repentance. This is changing. Repentance means mind. It's saying, God, it's admitting, I have thought about you wrong. And I am going to align my mind with the truth and reality of who you are. Now you might say, I've tried that, and it hasn't worked. I've tried to change my mind, and I keep going back to the same old thoughts, the same rut of thinking. Because it's all about the power source that we're plugged into. Notice he says, don't copy the behaviors of this world, but let it doesn't say, start, start thinking differently. Do it. Pull yourself up by your intellectual bootstraps and change the way you think. He says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This is an act of grace, not an act that we can do on our own. Follow Paul, his, cha- his train of thought here in Romans 8. Look at what he says. He, he's referring to this, this battle of the mind. He says, those who are dominated by sinful nature think about sinful things, but are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that please the Spirit. If your sinful nature controls your mind, there is death. But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, there is life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile toward God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. See, unbelievers can only think about themselves can only think selfishly. Their mind is a slave to the master of sin. Their old sin nature, it has to obey. Whatever the sin nature says for it to do, the mind will do. Whatever the sin nature says to think about, the mind has to think about. It has no option. But that's not us, brothers and sisters. Verse 9, he says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, Christ came to this earth to die for us and for us to be crucified with him. Our sin nature was nailed to the cross. It has no more control over us. And now he's given us a new life, a new heart, and a new mind. 
And now we don't have to do what the sinful nature says. We don't have to think what the sinful nature tells us to think. He says we are now controlled by the Spirit of God. And we can think about the things that please the Spirit. And what pleases the Spirit? The magnification of Jehovah, of Yahweh. Notice how our mind's not our own, though. The option isn't just like, okay, today, you think about what you want to think about. We have, we have, really, we have one choice. We can give control of our mind to our flesh or to the Holy Spirit. That's the question. Who do you want to be the master of your mind? And you are not one of those two options. Second Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every to make it obedient to Christ. We have an active role in giving the Holy Spirit control of every single one of those 50,000 thoughts that we are going to think today. To surrender it unto him, to use our minds as he would have us to use them. The battle of our lives starts in the mind. And we're going we're to wrap this up by looking at, at three mindsets that would glorify God. And that when we give control of our minds to the Holy Spirit, these are three things that I think will mark the, 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 the mind controlled by the Spirit. Number one, the pure mind. Paul says in Philippians, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He says our thoughts are to be on what is true and good and praiseworthy. What did you spend uh, this past week? What did you spend most of your time thinking about? Wrapped up in. That is what's going to drive the godly life versus the ungodly life. You see, adult starts in the brain. starts in the mind. Jesus said, he said, if you look at a woman with lust, it is the same thing as committing adultery. If you hate a brother in your heart, it is the same thing as killing him. Because Jesus understood that our thoughts lead to our emotions and behavior in, in, in following in, in suit. Garbage in, garbage out. Lustful thoughts lead to adultery. Hateful thoughts lead to murder. The most important thing about us is what, we, what we're thinking about. And that's why, why, why Paul said this in, in Colossians, ultimately, where is our mind to be? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Ultimately, every single one of our thoughts should revolve around the person of Jesus. It's not just stop thinking bad thoughts and you'll stop doing bad things. It's start thinking about Christ and you will start to live like him. See, if our, if, our, if our minds are set on Christ, we are going to have his mindset. And what is his mindset? His mindset is on other people and how to meet other people's needs and to love them well and how to enjoy. We've been going through John. What is Jesus' top priority? to do the Father's will, to please the Father, to glorify his Father. And as our thoughts dwell on the person of Jesus Christ and who he is in our lives, that's going to become our one driving will in our lives, is to please God and enjoy him forever. 
So the pure mind is the mind controlled by the spirit. Secondly, the biblically literate mind. I want to talk to you for just a second here. How well do you know your Bible? Like, if you went home today and you were to study your Bible on your own, would you be able to open it of the Bible and to be able to know, have a pretty good idea of what this book talks about and how it fits into the rest of Scripture and how it applies to your life, why it matters that I'm reading this book, would understand that book. Many of you would say, I, there's no way. What about, how, can you explain the gospel to someone? If someone came up to you and said, so you're a Christian, what does that mean? Or if someone wanted to ask you about your faith, and could you defend your faith? Could you defend the gospel? You see, that's, that is not just Pastor Larry's job. That's not just my job as a teacher, Chris's, or Jacob's, or a Sunday school teacher. The role of the, of the, the church in teaching is to not just feed the sheep, but to teach the sheep how to feed themselves. See, otherwise, we turn this into, come on in on Sunday morning, get your devotional, your pick-me-up for the week, and go back out there and have a good time. That's not what this is about. And this is not just my thoughts, by the way. I'm not trying to just, you know, take the responsibility off of the, the pulpit. Peter said this, and so did Paul. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. In your heart, in the seat of your mind and intellect and desire, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. When someone says, where does that hope come from? Can we give them the reason? Not just, oh, I feel like God is great. Can you give a rational answer? Can you point to Scripture and say, this is where my hope lies? Paul said the same thing. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly explains the word of truth. Can we as believers correctly explain the word of truth? I don't say these things to freak you out. But I say these things because we need to take the role of studying and knowing Scripture as seriously as anything in our lives. And as parents, are we as concerned of our kids understanding Scripture and their faith as we are them understanding their academics? Like, I'm in the school system, and I know how much parents care about their child's academics, and that's a good thing. But we put that emphasis on good academics, get a good college education, get a good job, get good money, get a good family. But are we, do we have that amount of concern and fervor that our kids know God and how he expresses himself through Scripture? Finally, the disciplined mind. The disciplined mind. Uh, J.P. Moreland said, the mind is like a muscle. If not exercised regularly and strenuously, it loses some of its capacities and strength. Okay? Just like if I stopped working out every day, my body would start to everybody else's. <laughs> Wasn't the response I was looking for. <laughs> if our minds are not exercised regularly, they will lose their capacity to think. And, I, and this isn't just talking about studying Scripture. This is, this is discovering all truth. God, all truth is God's truth. Are we thinking? And it could be in any area, and that's wherever, and we're going to see in this series, wherever God puts you in your life, we can be thinking to his glory, be engaged, be lifelong learners. 
using our minds. And you say exercising the mind, that sounds like hard. I don't even like to read. I don't want to be, a, I'm, not a th- I'm not an intellectual, I'm not a thinker. I'm not asking for all of us to be rocket scientists. But I will say that it's amazing how people can rise to the challenge. I took a group of teenagers a couple years ago down to a leadership conference in Colorado. It's called Summit Ministries. And um, I was told it was a leadership conference. So I'm thinking, sweet, there's going to be ropes courses and, you know, fun little, you know, lame analogies toward leadership through these games we're playing. And we're in Colorado, so we're going to be whitewater rafting, hiking mountains, avoiding the legal marijuana. Um, and, and I'm thinking that, that, that's what I'm thinking. But when we got there, and that was the expectation of these 12 teenagers as well. So we get there, and uh, we were surprised to find out that there was, over the 10 days, there was going to be 70 hours of class time. They woke up every morning, and for seven or eight hours a day, they had to dress as nice as I am now, and come to class. They had to clean their rooms by 6.30 a.m. They had to look like an army bunker, or an army, where do army people live? I don't know. Barracks. Yeah, but like in boot camp. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, is that right? right, We'll leave that subject alone. Um, They had to show up every morning, and they sat through hour and hour of lecture, and these these professors talk about how the, how, what the Bible and God has to do with government and, and politics and economics and evolution and abortion and, and all these areas and this deep, abstract thinking. I'm thinking these kids, after day one, are going to want to get on the next flight home to Alaska. But you know what I found? C.S. Lewis says, he says, we are to have a, a child's heart but a grown-up's head. And when, when the people at Summit treated these teenagers like they had a grown-up's head, they started to act like grown-ups. And they responded to that bar being set high. And they met those expectations. And they were there in the morning. And they were dressed right and ready to learn. And they ate it up like gangbusters. One of the nights there was the NBA Finals were on. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm sneaking out of here. I'm going to go down to my cabin and watch this game. I tried to get our star basketball player to come down and watch it with me. He goes, no, 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 man. Dr. So-and-so is speaking. And it was this 75-year-old man that was going to give a two-hour lecture on some abstract biblical concept, and he's all in. It's going to be sweet. It's amazing what we can do when we're treated like grown-ups. And the last thing I want to say about that is, J.P. Moreland said, distraction and noise are enemies of an intellectual and spiritual life. Focus and quiet are its friends. How much of our day are we inundated with social media and iPads and iPhones and 70-hour work weeks and just constant busyness and we don't have time to get alone with God to be able to simply think and meditate and most importantly, listen. I tried, yesterday I tried to sit down at lunch, or a bowl of cereal, and, uh, and I'm sitting there, I'm going to eat it, I'm thinking, all right, I'm just going to sit down, I'm just going to think, I'm going to pray, I'm going to, and within, I mean, I seriously went for like 30 seconds, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, I forgot to DVR something, and oh, what was on my, what was the Twitter, and before you know it, I've got my iPad out, my TV's on, are we able to get away and be quiet and think about our God? The most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. Let's pray. Father, we come from Adam and Eve. We came into this world with depraved minds. Father, we in our mind think of ourselves as God, that we should be on the throne, that we should be in control, that we should be revered by our peers, by people in this world. 
But Father, that is not right thinking. You are God alone. You alone are worthy of being glorified and gloried in. And Father, we could not, we could not come to that conclusion on our own. And so you sent your Son into this world to die for us and to defeat that depraved mind. And through your Spirit, you have transformed us. Father, take our minds and transform them that we might think rightly about you, that we might live rightly for you. Father, your word says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of our ways, may we acknowledge you that you might set our paths straight. Father, forgive us for wrong thinking. We repent of the way, the lies that we've told ourselves about you and about ourselves. Father, we would think about things that are pure and good. That every one of our thoughts would be taken captive and given power of the Holy Spirit to control. That we would think about your Son and who he is in our lives. That we would be lifelong learners, discovering and enjoying the truth as revealed to us in creation. Father, take our minds, take our lives, use them for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.